Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you've gathered us here in this place today. We thank you, Lord, for new birth, for new life. We thank you, Lord, for all the, the ways that you save us, but principally for the fact that you came down to this world in Jesus, that we might have fellowship with you again. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts. They might be acceptable in thy sight, for thou art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. When is a thief not a thief? When is a thief not a thief? Today, we celebrate Jesus the thief. And that sounds bold and outrageous. And I wouldn't dare to say it, except, to our, except that our Lord Jesus himself calls himself the plunderer and the thief today in the gospel reading. Did you catch it? It's kind of a weird metaphor, right? We don't normally think of Jesus that way. But Jesus is the plunderer and the thief because he comes to this world and plunders it. He comes to this world and he binds Satan. He binds his hands and his feet so that he can take back what was his to begin with. What better gospel reading to have at a baptism? I didn't pick this reading, and most of you know I generally stick with the lectionary. And so here in the scriptures is told the greatest story that's ever been told. The story of death and rebellion of man. The story of the redemption and rescuing of God. The story of the glorification of man through the Holy Spirit. Eventually to sit at God's right hand we hear it in all three of the scriptures today. The oldest story ever told, the most important story ever told. Look with me at Genesis chapter 3, either in your Bibles or in the booklet. It's on the first page there of your scripture insert, if you don't have your Bible with you. What's going on here as we pick up in Genesis 3? Well, we see in verse 1 and 2, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And we know this serpent here, not just to be any old snake. We know him to be the devil himself. How do we know that? Well, Scripture tells us. We have to flip all the way to the end of the book. But Scripture tells us this is from Revelation Chapter 12, verse 9, we read, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. And his angels were thrown with him, and woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down in your in, has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman. 
So do you see all the way at the end of the book, we have Revelation telling us what's going on here in Genesis. That this serpent is the devil, thrown down out of heaven, thrown down because of his rebellion, and he's been thrown down to where? To earth. And God puts Adam and Eve in this garden, this perfect place, and he tells them they can eat anything that they want, except don't go and eat of that tree. And so what does the devil do? Well, look with me as we continue. Verse 2 of Genesis 3. I'm sorry, this is actually the the end of verse 1 in Genesis 3. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. The serpent, the devil, tempts the woman, and he tricks her into thinking that God is keeping something from her. Do you see that? That somehow God has got something better that he's not letting her have. That somehow God's holding out. And it would be better for her if she was her own master. If she was in charge of herself, not in charge, not in submission under God. Verse 5, though, continues the story, 5 and 6. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, the devil says. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. So you see, Adam doesn't get off here easy. It's not like he's off somewhere else. He doesn't stop her. He doesn't remind her. He goes right along. And he takes the fruit along with her. Ultimately, this is an act of rebellion against God. Now, you have to remember here that Eve has no concept of death. Because we look at this from this side of the fall... And we say, Eve, you idiot. (laughs) Adam, you moron. What are you doing? Why would you do this? But remember, they've been tricked into thinking that God's holding out something from them. And they don't know what death is like. They don't know what sin is like. They don't know the pains. They don't know everything that's going to come along with it. And they take the fruit and everything that comes along with it. Incidentally, this trick is one of the oldest in the book. One might say here that it is the oldest in the book, right? Our adversary, the devil, and his angels will often try a line like this. And maybe you've heard this whispered in your ear one time or another. Maybe even recently. I know I have. You hear this whisper, you're missing out. God's keeping something from you. 
Take matters into your own hands. Learn to know for yourself. That voice, we need to learn to know for ourselves, Because that voice, that whisper, is the deadly whisper of our enemy. Gregory the Great, Bishop of Rome in the 600s, wrote this. He said, For our ancient enemy ceases not daily to do the very same thing which he did in paradise. For he endeavors to pluck out the words of God from the hearts of men and to plant therein the false blandishments of his own promising. He day by day softens down the threatenings of God and invites belief of his false promises. And you see that going on in your life. We see it going on in the world, right? Those whisperings go on, right? God doesn't really mean that. God can't really possibly mean what he wrote there in the Bible. No, you know better. You're enlightened. You're a modern person. Make the decision yourself with your own experience. Do you see? It seems so reasonable. And yet, it's so deadly. But it always works. It always works. So why should he try something different? Death is what was brought into this world with this choice of Adam and Eve. Not just the Eve, but Adam, but the entire world itself. Look at verse 7. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Well, you're probably scratching your head saying, did you just read the wrong verse? I don't see death there. But that, friends, is the first death of Genesis 3. Think about it for a minute. Adam and Eve are in this perfect garden. They know one another intimately. They love one another completely. They're in complete fellowship with God. And they eat the fruits and they make clothes. Do you see this as the first death? What do the clothes represent? Was it just getting kind of cold in the garden and they needed to put on some pants? No, that's not what's going on here. This is still the garden, but there is a disassociation from God and one another that goes on and is symbolized here in the clothes. The putting on of clothes. What do clothes do? Now, you know, I'm not advocating you go out and be nudists. But what do, what do clothes do? They separate us from one another, right? They hide us. And yeah, that's good and proper today. But was it good and proper for Adam and Eve who were created man and woman in God's image? No. All of a sudden, this wall comes down between male and female. And friends, we still deal and grapple with all sorts of problems that come from that. Think about it. What is marriage? Why do we have such trouble today in our society deciphering the fact that a man should leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, man and a woman? What is transgenderism? What's going on with all of that? It can be traced all the way back to here. This confusion about identity, this confusion about how we were made. What happens when husbands and wives or men and women threaten one another? 
use coercion against one another, hurt one another. In any context, do you see the bitter fruit here of this first death? But most importantly, there's a disassociation, not just between man and woman, but between humanity and God. How do we know that? Well, all we have to do is continue with the story. Verses 8 and 10. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And look at the man's response. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. Look at God's response. Who told you you were naked? Who told you you were naked? Who told you you had to be ashamed? Who told you that you couldn't be with me, free with me, completely exposed to God? Who broke that? Do you see, this is God's this, this is God's lament here. That we're not free here because of this disassociation. We're not just disassociated as genders, but we're disassociated from God himself as a human race. Here is another death, and the worst death of all. Far worse than physical death because there's this separation that comes between each human being and God because of sin. We call this sin original sin in our tradition. The Eastern Church calls it ancestral sin, but it's the same thing essentially. It's this idea that in Adam, all of us, and in Eve, all of us fall. We fall from being able to be in the presence of God because he's perfect and holy and we're not. St. Chrysostom, writing in the 300s, wrote this. Through their guilt, Adam and Eve stripped themselves of the glory surrounding them. Seeing themselves unworthy of such perfect honor because of the fall, grace from above was stripped from them. And they felt the sense of their obvious nakedness. This is the story of rebellion. And, you know, it's particularly hard to see this in a young child. You look at Anne, and how can you say a sinner? And yet, that's the reality. Not because of anything she's done yet, but because she's been born of man and woman. Because she's a daughter of Eve. I was scrolling through my Facebook um, feed this week, and it was an interesting article came up. It was the pictures of infamously evil people. Maybe some of you saw it. It was the pictures of infamously evil people in the world as children. And there were pictures there from people like Joseph Stalin to the Zarnev brothers, the ones that blew up the Boston Marathon, to Adam Lanza, the shooter, do you know what? They looked like beautiful little children. 
But in each of them, of course, we know that in each of, just as in each of us, we know there's a virus. There is this original sin that seeks to take us off track, and not just to take us off track, but to destroy us and use us to destroy everybody around us. That's the reality of what we are as human beings without God. But thank God he doesn't leave us there, right? Thank God Genesis 3 isn't the end of the story. In fact, even in Genesis 3, we have what's called the proto-evangelion, which means the proto-gospel, the prototype of the gospel. I don't know, if you heard that term before? Has anybody heard that term before? It's in Genesis 3. It's, um, it's verse, where is it here? Da, 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 da. Oh, it is in verse 15 of Genesis 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman, says God, and between your offspring and her offspring. Here it is. If you have your Bible, underline this. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, God's talking to Satan here and the woman. And so here we see God promising hope even back here in Genesis 3. That out of woman will not just come death and destruction, but out of woman will come a man who will step on the head of the serpent, who will crush death, who will crush the devil, who will win that victory. 1 Corinthians 15.22 begins by saying, for in Adam we will all die, but it's not the end of the verse. In Christ we will all be made alive. The answer here is that we have to turn to God just as the psalmist does. Again, if you pay attention, these scriptures all fit together. Look at the psalmist. Psalm 130, verse 1. Out of the deep have I called to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Out of the deep have I called to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Oh, let your ears consider well the voice of my supplications. And then look at the last verse, or the second to last verse, verse 7 of the psalm. O Israel, trust in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from her sins. Many generations later, another woman, a daughter of Eve, would bring forth a man. That woman was named Mary, of course, and that man was named Jesus. And that man was to be the rescuer of all mankind, the answer to this sin. In today's gospel reading, Jesus had just gathered the 12 disciples. He's just starting out his mission here in Mark. And what does Jesus do? If, if you know what's been going on here in Mark chapter 3, you know that Jesus has been ridiculed by the Pharisees here. Remember last week we talked about this? Because he was walking on the Sabbath and he was, his disciples were eating the grain off of the fields as he walked. And Jesus goes last week into the synagogue and he heals a man who has a withered hand. And the Pharisees jump all over him again because he does that. 
And what Jesus says is that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But what's going on in the larger picture here is that Jesus is going around on his work to help mankind, to rescue mankind, to provide an exit strategy, a way out from this sin and destruction. And the Pharisees accuse him of having a demon. We can't get into the theological intricacies today. We don't have enough time. Some of you probably think I've taken enough time. But look with me at the gospel reading. Look what Jesus says in response. Verse 23, it's on the last page of your insert. And he called them to him. And he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. What's Jesus saying there? That his works, his healings, his preaching is all bringing about the end of Satan's stronghold. And a house divided against itself cannot stand. What Jesus is here saying is that I can't heal people in the name of Satan. That doesn't make any sense. Satan comes to destroy. He doesn't come to heal and save. Right? You see, he's throwing it right back into the Pharisee's face here. But then he gets into that first passage that I referenced opening the sermon. But no one can enter, this is verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, but whatever, but whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Do you see what Jesus is saying here is that he is the thief. He's come to bind and break in to this world. He's come to take back his own. And you know who that is? You. Anne. Me. All of us that are bound and stuck and don't have any hope outside of Jesus. All of us that can't make ourselves better, that can't put ourselves and make ourselves pleasing before God. You know, some people say, I'm a good person. I do the right thing. I tell the truth. I keep a moral code. Well, really, that moral code might be better than your neighbor, but is that moral code good enough for God? No, it's not. But Jesus kept the moral code completely. Jesus kept God's law entirely. And in Jesus, even the worst and the best can be saved. And so in Jesus Christ, we have salvation and redemption, forgiveness of sins. This is God's promise to us. This is what we're celebrating today. Here, as Anne comes forward next, we're going to have God reaching down into this world 
and saving another soul from the claws of the devil. Baptism's nothing short of that. And we live our lives eternally knowing that because we have the Holy Spirit, we're not going to be left in this fallen world. Yes, we may die physically. Probably all of us will die physically at some point unless Jesus comes back first. But our hope is secure in the fact that Jesus has come to rescue us. Not because of magic water, but because we turn to him, as the psalmist says, and trust in him. Because we do this as an act of obedience, being cleansed, being washed, being brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Baptisms are nothing short of that. Friends, don't let this become routine. I know we've had so many here, right? I was filling out the book. This is like number 11, I think. It's a wonderful thing. Don't let this become routine. Every time we do this, it's bringing another soul into the presence of God. How joyful it is to celebrate that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you did not leave us stuck. That you did not leave us in our sin, in death. But you seek us. You came down to earth as one of us. You died on the cross for us. You rose again so that we might rise again. And you sent your Holy Spirit to live in us. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would be in our midst, especially this morning as we celebrate. Help us to walk forth from this place knowing that we are new creations. The old is gone. The new has come. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now I invite Anne and her family forward here to the baptismal font. We're on page six, entitled The Exhortation. Dearly beloved, Scripture teaches us that we were all dead in our sins and trespasses. Our Lord Jesus Christ said, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom.